Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups. And my guest and I today on your terms is Rosanna Iacono. Rosanna, Rosanna, thank you for joining me. It's a I'm pleasure. All, thank you so much. I, I, uh, I practiced that name and, and I, you know, I got it out the first time. And <laughs> so I'm sure I, I'm going to have to circle back and apologize later. But uh, tell no, our no, listeners a little bit. No, you did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> You're very gracious. So please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm the managing partner of a boutique consultancy called The Growth Activists. It's, um, it's, we have three business partners and we have a strap line which is helping the courageous build good businesses faster. So what do we mean by that? It's all about the, the whole notion of good businesses is really uh, about businesses that sort of tap into this new consciousness, uh, into conscious capitalism or into stakeholder capitalism and are still making money but are also doing good for society by understanding that there's a bigger group of stakeholders. So that's kind of what our main, um, you know, our, the, the, the purpose of the business is all about. It's really about um, uh, really empowering businesses and individuals to do well and do good at the same time and really fulfil their potential that way. Uh, but it's definitely still very much about uh, creating commercial success for our clients. And so I've been doing that for almost two years now with my business partners. And our main services are really consulting, marketing, and learning and development. Uh, so that's what I'm doing at the moment. But um, if you want me to delve into my past career. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was my next question, but you beat me to it. <laughs> okay. okay, great. Uh, so I've come from a corporate background. Uh, right after university, I, like many Australians, uh, thought I would go overseas and uh, see if I could work in, in Europe for a year or two before coming home with, with some experience. And I was really fortunate. The first job, I went to Italy because I, was, I grew up bilingual and spoke the language. And um, I had this dream of working for Armani or, you know, one of the amazing Italian fashion brands. That's what I wanted to do. And instead I landed this job with Nike. Mm. In their yeah, in their in another their famous Italian company. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little did I know I was going to be with American multinationals for the next sixteen <laughs> years. Exactly so, right. Um, but yeah, but with Nike, it turned into this amazing 10-year career. So I started in Italy and then I went across to the European headquarters in Amsterdam. And then I had a couple of global assignments that meant I was spending a lot of time in Portland, Oregon as well at the global headquarters. Um, so I had this fabulous 10-year career, mostly in apparel. Um, but a lot of it was about um, not just, I started off really sort of building a market like the Italian market and, and really driving apparel into to that and you know little little successes like taking the business from five million dollars turnover to a hundred million dollars turnover in wow. you know in, in 
years. It was amazing. But it was also pioneering days. You know, we're talking about the early 90s when Nike was just really starting to push hard into markets like Europe. Um, but a lot of the second half of my career at Nike was very much creating and launching new categories. So that's kind of been a bit of a hallmark of my career and, and my you know, a capability that I've developed which is how do you tap into macro trends and understand how consumers are evolving uh, and create new categories that tap into their uh, emerging needs and desires. So a couple of things that I did at Nike was um, I created a category called outdoor basketball that didn't exist before. And that was really interesting. You, If you're a basketball fan, you may remember that in 1998, there was a big NBA lockout and it mm. was um, the first time that the game became highly politicized and a lot of people uh, found a real distaste with basketball and they were moving away from it. So all of a sudden they weren't wearing their Lakers and their Bulls jerseys anymore to play on outdoor courts, but they were taking army t-shirts and, you know, cutting off the sleeves and, you know, army fatigues and this whole kind of, you know, street ball movement started to happen and it was very anti-NBA. And nobody was doing a range of clothing for them uh, that was technical and performance oriented. So uh, we put together a proposal and had to pitch it to all the VPs at Nike. You know, it's a very uh, political and matrix driven organization. I'm sure that we, is. That's right. <laughs> oh, definitely. And, you know, anything, definitely. And anything fashion-y is like fashion was the F word at Nike, mm. you know, it, about performance and I had to reassure all my stakeholders that it was absolutely performance gear but it was for for you know hardcore basketball lovers that just did not want to wear, wear um, NBA jerseys and um, we got that across the line and the first in the first six months it, it drove 60 million dollars in sales that's globally. incredible that is absolutely yeah, was, incredible I mean that's yeah, it's so interesting it was, the idea of you know, you were you were within a, a corporate structure, but you were very entrepreneurial within that structure. So I guess it's more of a intrapreneur than an entrepreneur. Definitely, definitely. And Nike does give people those opportunities. I mean, the just do it philosophy really mm -hmm. does fuel the culture of the, of the business. It's very much, you know, don't ask for permission, but ask for forgiveness later. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, but, you know, getting certain things across the line, you really needed to know how to work the matrix and how to bring in sponsors and, uh, and different people who would support your initiatives to make them happen. So if you lacked those skills, it was hard to get things across the line. But, but when you knew how to work the system, you could make some amazing things happen. So um, that was one of the first big things that I, that I did at Nike that was kind of a bit of a career builder for me. And then the last thing that I did at Nike um, that was really quite notable was launching at the time it was called white label Nike white label and it was kind of the fusion of fashion and sport so that was another insight that I gained I was working with a lot of strategic accounts across Europe um, working out of the Amsterdam European headquarters and we kept hearing from the really cool stores like Colette in Paris or Barney's in New York both of whom no longer exist, by the way, which is really sad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, but, you know, we were hearing from these really cool retailers and they were saying, we, we really want Nike product um, and our customers want it, but they don't want the same stuff that's in Foot Locker. Yeah. So there was a real opportunity to actually take Nike to the fashion distribution, um, but take performance gear to them. So it was not about creating Nike fashion clothes, but it was creating an exclusive range of very cool colorways and very cool styles, but still highly functional and highly performance based. Um, and that was the birth of a new category. Um, and it started off being called, it had about three different names in uh, before we launched it. It was Nike Fusion, then it was Nike White Label, and now it's known as NSW uh, at Nike. And I'm told by my friends who are still at Nike Nike, um, and I have many of them who are, who are there as VPs, that it is now a multi-billion dollar category. That's, in, so, that's an, absolutely incredible. That is yeah, absolutely and I'm, you incredible. Know, maybe if I hadn't done it, maybe somebody else would have, but, um, but I guess, yeah. You I can was, never I, assume that. <laughs> you can never I don't know. Assume I don't that. They may have gotten into it anyway, but um, yeah, it was it was an amazing opportunity. I loved it. I had a ball launching that, uh, and it was you know all yeah all about you know a completely different business unit and launching a business unit with a different model and a different go to market. Um, right. So that was a right. lot of fun. yeah. Um, and then that's after amazing. that, I uh, let me let me touch let me, let me before we get off the Nike because I think you're transitioning into into kind of the next phase, but. Um, I, I, when you were, you were kind of unpacking the, the whole Nike story, it took me back to when I was in high school, which was, I think a century ago, but, uh, I, my very first job when I was in high school was working at a shoe store. And this is, it was in a small Midwestern town in, in the States. And I remember in 1980 when, when Nike came to this town. And it was so revolutionary and so unique and so different. I mean, it replaced all of the, you know, all the kids wore the Converse Chuck Taylors. They, that's all they had was Chuck Taylors. <laughs> that was these basketball teams all wore the Converse. But when Nike landed, it was a revolution. It was amazing just the, the uh, impact that it had on, on uh, fashion globally. I mean, just out of the box out of the box so yeah it was it was crazy time Definitely. They, they created cult you know a whole um i guess culture of uh and a you know macro trend around wearing sportswear as um as uh you know as as leisure wear as as, as work wear even now yeah. you know people yeah. wearing nike trainers to the office and, oh it um, is it is i mean we've gotten pa way past business casual <laughs> it's it's now you know it's it's like athletic wear but please go carry on with your with your uh with your story because i didn't mean to interrupt but i, I wanted to touch on that that memory you know trip down memory lane for me no, no. And that's, that's beautiful. I love that. And everybody has those, you know, has those stories when they first came across, you know, something that, yeah, that was, it was a real wow moment with Nike. Um, and when they discovered it, uh, except for the diehard Adidas fans, they, they'll, they'll tell you about their Adidas. Moment. Exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah. So after Nike, so I, I'd been there for 10 years and I was headhunted by Levi's and it was a very, very hard decision to leave Nike because I loved my job uh, and I loved what I was doing. But I'm also the sort of person who I want to challenge myself and keep mm -hmm. growing and 
doing new things. And Levi's asked me to become the global brand director for their premium category. So premium was the real top of the pyramid category for them. It was, uh, they had two collections, Levi's Red and Levi's Vintage Clothing. And then Levi's Red was a collection that was all about new blueprints of denim. And Levi's were the inventors of the, of the denim category. Yeah, so it was about sure. maintaining their position also was given the responsibility for the women's category as well. Um, and another big lesson that I learned working for Levi's, it can take your eye off the ball and very quickly lose a lot of your business. Mm -hmm. So Levi's was very different to Nike. Nike has always been a customer first. Um, whereas when I got to Levi's, what I found was a completely different culture. And it was almost, so they did, they had their own manufacturing. They were just getting out of manufacturing as I joined, but it was one of those businesses where the tail wagged the dog. So they had this incredible, you know, I call it the sausage machine. You know, they had these factories that were all geared up to to deliver 501s and there was a time that men women and children all wore 501s yep. and um, suddenly something changed uh, all of a sudden brutalicious sexy denim started coming out from all of these niche brands and you had the Beyonce's and the Britney's mm. um, all wearing these you know these sexy you know low um, you know, hipster jeans and Levi's completely missed it. They thought they were going to keep selling 501s to women forever. And overnight they lost a huge chunk of their consumption. But there was, there was a saying called pink it and shrink it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you take it. the men's, yeah, you take the men's, you know, blue, blue shoe or, you know, blue fleece hoodie and you do a, a pink and smaller version for women. And um, Lee, uh, Nike had learned that lesson quite early, that that is not an, an acceptable approach. You won't grow your business and you won't connect with a female consumer unless she feels she's being served in a very direct way and you're establishing a real dialogue with her. So I was able to take those learnings from Nike and apply them at Levi's. But it certainly um, probably know, made you more comprehensive e even in your own skill set. I mean, you saw such a, you know, kind of a, a diversity of, you know, approaches, corporate approaches and and that, I mean, that's, as we as we kind of transition into today, is that has that? I mean, if you look back at Nike, look back at Levi's, and other other positions that you might have held in that interim period, but how has that kind of formed your consultancy today? And and what are you know some of the key takeaways that you really you know have built the foundation for your your business today? Um, so our philosophy is that when you're delivering strategy, you're putting any type of strategy together, whether it's, it's your big strategic plan, uh, your roadmap for the next three years, or just delivering one small project, you need to have a broader stakeholder framework. So, you know, you've, you've, you've identified what the project deliverable is. Mm -hmm. And the next step right after that is to say, well, how does this project impact and create benefit for these six stakeholder groups? So we have a framework that's around six stakeholders. First of all, customer. Second, employees. And this isn't in order, but mm -hmm. you know, customer is obviously the most important. Employees, is, um, shareholders, the community, the environment, and suppliers. So there are a whole 
bunch of stakeholders that are really dependent on how you go about things to also have success outcomes. So it's about consider considering all of those and they believe in what we're doing and we're doing good for all of them whilst making money at all costs. If there's no financial viability, um, you know, there is no business right. that, you know, can we make money and do really well and mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, uh, do well or do good by these stakeholders? But over those times that, that uh, I mean, your, your vast amount of experience that you've had and in, in including the consultancy side of things. So it, it appears that these are almost universals that, that you know, the, some of the things that you talked about, regardless of the size of the company, regardless of the size of the team that you're working with, um, if you were speaking to somebody on a real micro level that, that was just wanting to start something, what would be two or three real foundational steps that you think you've learned over your, over your time that, that are just absolutely crucial to launching a, a startup successfully? What, what have you found over, the, over the, you know, the different roles that you've had and the different companies you've consulted with? What are two or three really foundational steps? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I think the first thing is just from a pure strategic, well, there's a couple of things, but from a pure strategic standpoint, um, make sure that it, it truly is a viable concept that is going to play into the new economy. Mm. And look at all of the macro trends that are around you um, and think about how the market is going to evolve dramatically. Um, you know, one of the, the phrases that I always repeat to, to customers, I heard, I heard a great speaker, a, a, a gentleman called Scott Farquhar, who's one of the co-founders of Atlassian, which is Australia's most um, well-known tech company, and you know, they, they operate in the US as well. Yeah. Um, I heard him speak last year, and he said, there's only three types of businesses in the world. Those that are digital, those that are trying to be digital, and those that will be disrupted by digital. Uh, and I think that is mostly true. There will always be a, a you know a handful of businesses that are very manual and very crafty and very um, you know all built built around craftsmanship and that will never go away. But there will still be an aspect of their business that will be digital. Um, and I think that is a you know a, a huge reality that that businesses need to be thinking about. How do they tap into an increasingly digitalized economy? Um, and consider the fact that artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, and, uh, you know, the major trends around data are all evolving very, very quickly. And so the way business will look in three to five years time is going to change dramatically. So think about the longevity of your business and how it will play into all of these macro trends. So that would be the first thing. Um, the second thing would be purpose. Uh, we're really, really big believers in purpose. And I think life is too short to be working in something you don't believe in. So if you're going to start a business, don't do it opportunistically because you think, hey, you know, the world needs um, masks, right? face masks right now because of coronavirus. I'm going to jump on that, you know. Make sure that it's something that you're absolutely passionate about. I'm not saying people shouldn't be entrepreneurial and shouldn't, you know, shouldn't jump on opportunities. But if you're going to be investing in starting a, a new business that you want to have yeah. as a source of revenue, think about 
what's the biggest societal impact that you want to have as an individual? Does, is there an alignment between the business purpose and your personal purpose mm, as an individual? Make sure you know your individual purpose first and then um, build your business around that. So that's no, the second. No. Uh, yeah, and the third is really about, you know, the relationship piece and the stakeholder piece, understanding there's a bigger group of stakeholders. And if you're going to start a business, at the, at the ver- from the very outset, you need to be thinking about, well, who will my stakeholders be? Who will my customers be? Who will my shareholders be? Thinking through all of that up front, I think, is also critical because stakeholder capitalism and conscious capitalism, whatever you want to call it, is set to grow. It will absolutely be the way that we do business. I mean, we, we talk about it with our clients. We say, you know, the last decade was about digital transformation and the, this decade will be about, you know, digital will only keep growing, right. but it'll be about the stakeholder capitalism and, and it'll be about purpose-led transformation. So, um, yeah, they would be the three key things. You were actually on the, uh, on the cutting edge if you had like jobs that were in the kind of the social responsibility um, genre, you know, a number of years ago. I mean, that, that, was, that was predating when it was, it was really kind of in vogue, you know, for, for companies to have those roles. So, um, yeah, you were, whoever you worked for at the time was certainly, you know, was pretty visionary. My boss said to me, fine, on top of your day job, you're also going to be chair of our CSR council, work it out. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, okay, um, sure. <laughs> so I, um, I, I had to self-educate really to understand, well, how do you do that? And actually, that, it was one of the coolest things ever to work out what should our community impact territory be? Um, and I, I kind of developed the model myself using, you know, what I'd learned out in the market and right. I looked at who was right. doing a great job. And, and um, my philosophy now around that, you know, a lot of businesses are like, oh, you know, we want to do breast cancer because um, my, you know, my, you know, sister-in-law had it or, um, you know, we want to do such and such a, a, um, an initiative <clears throat> because, you know, it's something that I'm, you know, involved in, you know, I love animals, so I want to do our SPCA. And the model that we developed was, no, you've got to talk to your customers and your employees and find out what they're passionate about. Mm, And then you also need to understand um, what makes sense for the business and where can you have impact. So, for example, at Jolique, we were a women's cosmetics business and we we actually just caught a round of brand uh, health check that we were about to do, a whole bunch of surveys we were about to send out to customers. So we actually added it to the questionnaire and said, you know, of all of these different types of cause territories, what's important to you? Um, and then we asked our employees as well. And what came back overwhelmingly was the education and economic empowerment of girls and women that came back as a really big uh big one that that everyone was really interested in and then we thought well does that make sense for our business well yeah we're in the business of serving women uh so that all of these overlaps came back you know and that's when you know yep 
that's the box that we're going to tick. So we, we said this will be our territory. And I think it's really important for businesses to, to work out what is their cause territory. And they may have many, you know, very, very large businesses will have to have many cause territories. But if you're a small business and you're just starting up, my recommendation is find one territory to work with that is really relevant to your business, to what you do day to day, to your customer, to your employees, and start there. You have, you have an uncanny knack of, of taking apparently disparate things and seeing what the connection is to, you know, to the whole. And as, as you've kind of woven your story today, I mean, every facet of your story is somehow connected to the next piece and connected to the next piece and then connected to the roles that you had, connected to the, the vision you have for your consultancy and the kind of the ethos and the, the goal and the, and the why behind what you do. And I have just, uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed just, just hearing you kind of unpack that. And, you know, it's almost like a spectator as you walk through your timeline, you know, the, of, of all the, the experiences you've had and just how it has really formed you into who you are today and formed your company into who it is today. And I just want to, once again, just thank you for taking the time today just to, to unpack that and, to speak into the lives of those that listen to Rising Tide Startups and at, at various levels. And even regardless of whether starting something or not, I mean, even from a personal standpoint, how can you kind of reframe your, your life? How can you reframe your career? How can you reframe how you look at, you know, the issues that, that are impacting us today? But I just want to, once again, Rosanna, thank you so much for taking the time today and just really playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Thanks again for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, anything I can do, uh, yeah, to, to help your community and spread the word, I'm very, very happy to, to participate. So thank you so much for having me. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.